Good morning again. Good morning to you too. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is found on page 947 in the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs there. If you don't have a, a Bible of your own, you're welcome to grab those. You can follow along with us. Page 947, it's Romans chapter 12. And we're continuing a series just for three weeks. We, we like to do this at back to school time where we refocus on kind of what we're about, our core values, our core practices. You'll see the artwork has some gears there, and we're just trying to get across the idea that you're seeing uh, under the hood uh, how we work, how we function, uh, what are our uh, kind of prime directives. This week, we're calling the sermon Be Transformed as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're focusing on what is often called the mission statement, uh, and this is a little more strategic level, how to accomplish our vision statement. So last week, we looked at the Great Commission, our vision uh, we said, I, I told you in the old days, our vision statement used to be world domination with the peace and love of Jesus. We, we've tried to make it more politically correct now. We say, multiply followers of Christ among every people group. That our job is to glorify God by doing that, by multiplying followers of Jesus. And so now at the strategic level, how do we do that? How, how do we change? How do we follow Jesus? How do we multiply followers of Jesus? What does that look like? in our lives as individual followers of him, and then that's going to carry through with how we do things, what's important to us as a church. I believe all of us want transformation. I think it's a pretty universal human uh, state of being that we are not satisfied with who we are. The way the scriptures describes it is that we are, we're made to bear his image. We're made to reflect God. We stand out from the animals. There's something different about us. We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to bear his image. We're supposed to glorify him is one of the ways that that's said. And Romans 3 says, we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. None, none of us really do that as we should. And so we'll see a, a game plan here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. How to reclaim that image, how to be transformed. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray for us, and we'll begin looking at this in more detail. God, we ask that you would teach us this morning. We ask that your word would renew our minds uh, we ask that we'd be able to understand your, your mercy that you've given to us in Jesus. We ask that your spirit would come and, and open our hearts, open our minds, help us to listen, help us to consider this news that, that's too good not to be true. God, give us an openness and transform us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, uh, I was 29, and I had some... Uh, I had some, I'm not still 29, just so you know. Uh, I, I had some, some transformation goals. I had some fitness goals, right? Some things that I wanted to accomplish before I turned 30. I, I wanted to transform this uh, lowly body through physical fitness. I, I wanted to change myself. And so I set these goals and I began working at accomplishing those fitness goals. I, uh, I just turned 40 last year and I haven't quite accomplished those goals yet, but I'm still... I'm still persevering, right? 
I'm still working at that transformation. Some of you may know what that's like to set those goals. If you work at a gym or you attend a gym, you know what it's like to all of a sudden see this influx of people that come in at New Year's, right? Um, the gym like just blows up and there's 10 times as many people there in January. And of course, they're all gone by March, right? Because they, they don't all hang in there. They have these goals of transformation and then they, they slide away. Um, you, you may not know what that's like with physical fitness goals. Maybe you've done that in your career, right? Maybe you've set some goals and you said, I want to transform my career. I want to change things. I want to move in a new direction. You start taking steps, right? A, B, C, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Uh, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's relationships. You're, you're trying to seek change. You're trying to seek transformation. What Paul is addressing here, I believe, is, is really much more core than, than physical transformation. It's much more uh, central and deep than financial transformation or transforming your family. Those things are good and right and, and should be, hopefully, secondary results of us being spiritually transformed. But most important, more important than anything else, is, is heart transformation, is internal transformation that works its way out in our spiritual life. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And it's what often Jesus was addressing in his confrontations with the religious leaders. He's saying it's not enough to just dress up the outside, you need deep spiritual transformation. You need, you need deep heart change. It's not good enough to just rearrange the furniture on the outside of your life. You, you need to be changed from the inside out. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He's showing us how that works. And it lines up nicely with our mission statement of how we believe we are to change as a, as a body and as individuals. We believe that God's given us clear direction um, different ministries will talk about these terms in different ways, right? So if you've been involved in, in different Christian ministries, you may have heard uh, echoes of what we're going to say this morning. One way that some Christian ministries talk about it is that their goal as a ministry is to win people to Christ, to build people up in Christ, and to send people out for Christ. Another way that was talked about at the church that I came from uh, in Temple where the bad people are is that um, they would say, you want to be, I, I joke because I grew up in Temple. I don't live there anymore, though. Um, they, they say that we want to evangelize people to Christ, establish people in a walk with Christ, and then equip them to do the ministry of Christ, right? So we're saying the same thing as a lot of other Christian ministries. The way we say it, we try to align it with our name because we're forgetful, so we just think that makes it easier to remember. So this morning, we're going to talk about our mission statement, and we state it as we want to trust God's grace, we want to submit to the Bible, and we want to be the church, right? So grace, Bible, church. So that's what it looks like as individuals and as a people. So the first one we want to unpack is trusting God's grace. If you want to be transformed, not conformed to the world, like he says in verse 2, but transformed, he starts with, it all starts with God's grace. Look at verse 1 here. He says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And then he goes on with the directions, right? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to not be conformed, to be transformed, to renew your mind. All of this is based on the appeal in the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, based on the mercies of God, the, the grace of God, the, the gospel, that Jesus showed us kindness. We deserved wrath and judgment because of our sin and our rebellion, and God gave us grace through Jesus. He forgave our sin by on the cross taking our sin upon himself and by giving us the righteousness of Christ. There's the substitution. There's this exchange that happens at the cross that we 
we trust in by faith in Jesus. And so that is the grace of God. That is the mercies of God. That is what we often call the, the gospel. You've heard that phrase gospel before. That's, a, that's like a, an old English turned into modern English rephrasing of this Greek word that is just literally good news. There's this good news. God's come for us. He loves us. He's giving our sins on the cross to Jesus, and he's giving us Jesus' righteousness. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's the mercies of God. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And he's then referring back to everything he's been talking about in Romans 1 through 11. Right? So if you want a fuller picture of the gospel, of the grace of God, of the mercies of God, just read Romans 1 through 11 this week. Just kind of skim through it real quickly. Um, it's in depth. I'm, I'm say that kind of joking because it's very deep, but it is very, very beautiful. It shows us this Jesus who gave his life for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful section of scripture. So he says, this, this is how it's going to happen. And, and I want to talk a little bit about what this word appeal means, because I think it's a, a nice word picture. Uh, the word appeal in verse one, it's, it's translated differently in different versions. So like if you're a King James person, uh, I believe it's beseech, right? I beseech you by the mercies of God. Uh, here in the ESV, it says, I appeal to you. I think other translations say, uh, I exhort you. Um, it's a word parakaleo in the Greek, which uh, literally uh, means like call alongside. Um, so you could kind of think of it as almost like someone cheering you on. Have you ever had someone that kind of comes alongside you in your weakness and says you can do it or, or puts their arm around you and says, I'm going to help you? That's really what the word, uh, it kind of shows that word picture to us, coming alongside. Uh, this word parakaleo, the, the noun version of it, we would say paraclete, which if y'all have studied the scripture much is what Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as in John chapter 14. He calls the Spirit the, the paraclete, that same kind of Greek word there. Uh, and sometimes it's translated as the, the comforter or the counselor. So, so the image is someone coming alongside and helping. Paul is saying, I'm coming alongside you. I'm appealing to you. I'm calling to you. I'm exhorting you by the mercies of God, through the mercies of God. Do this based on the mercy of God, his grace. Are you trusting in his grace to enable you, to empower you? So a picture I wanted to show you was a little child who was holding uh, mom and dad's hands. Uh, have you ever held a kid's hand and you're on one side and somebody else is on the other side and they, they swing, right? It's kind of it's fun, like you can just suspend them. Um, or when your kids are little and they're learning to walk, they can't quite walk yet, but if you hold their hand, they can walk. I want you to get that image of God doing that for us in our life. As we trust his grace, he enables us to walk. We reach our hands up to him, and he enables us to take the steps that we need to take. So we say this by saying we should trust in God's grace. We should trust God's grace. We should trust him. We can put our full weight on him, that he's good, that he loves us, that he delights in us, that he gave Jesus for us. And so what often happens is sometimes people think of the gospel, they think of grace as merely the doorway into the family of God, when really we should understand it as the everyday power of our life. There's a movement among uh, evangelical Bible teaching churches today that's sometimes referred to as the gospel-centered movement. So like if you're a Christian geek and you read blogs, you're kind of aware of this terminology. Um, they, they talk about gospel-centered. And that doesn't mean you center your life around traditional gospel music, right? 
It means you center your life around the act of Christ. And what it means is you believe that Christ's work on the cross empowers us to live our daily life. It doesn't just give us fire insurance, right? It doesn't just save us from hell, but it lets us live every day. And so we believe that is very important. This is a movement that kind of, in the last 30 years, rolled out of the the Presbyterian church, the Reformed guys there, and it's kind of spilled over to the the Baptists and the Bible churches and, you know, and all these different denominations now. And it's this re-emphasis on the same thing that Bible teachers of the past have emphasized, Martin Luther, John Wesley, you know, other people in the past that would emphasize this idea that grace is what you need to empower every, every day, every step of your life. It is so central. It is so important. And I want us to understand that as a church, that, that all the other things we're going to accomplish are based on the mercies of God. The way it's phrased here in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's a simple preposition there that's translated by, and that just means by means of, through the, through the power of, through the agency of the mercies of God. It's the power. You can't do it on your own. If you think you can do it on your own, you're going to fall. And so if right now you think you can do it on your own, someday you're going to fall, and I want to encourage you, exhort you, then, then look to the mercies of God, to this gracious God who will be standing there waiting for you. Reach up your hands to him. He will carry you. He'll take you the next step. I know a lot of you right now, there's stuff that you're facing tomorrow, N- next week, next month. There's stuff that you're like, God, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to carry that off. I don't know how to be patient in this situation. I don't know how to persevere in this situation. I don't know how to be brave in this situation or be loving in the face of this situation. Trust God's grace. Paul says, I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. Believe it. Re-believe it. Ask him for his help. Based on the picture that he is merciful, that means he's someone you can call on to help you, and he will help you. The next thing that we see is that we are to submit to the Bible. Uh, We say we are to submit to his Bible, and often the way we phrase this, if you look at our posters in the hall that kind of restate our core values, it says submit to the Bible in community. And we've kind of, in the last couple of years, re-emphasized community because as modern people, Westerners, Americans, uh, we tend to live our lives individualistically. We tend to think, well, I can grow in Christ by listening to this podcast and reading this book and having my quiet time, but I don't need to actually be connected to other human beings, right? And that's very much a modern individualism thing. We have our driveway, our car, our music, our TV. You know, we live in separated cells from each other. Christianity always assumes that we're rubbing shoulders with each other, that we're living in community with others, that, that we're uh, sharpening each other. Like it says in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's this idea that Christians would actually have other people knowing their junk, right? Like people would know what you're struggling with and you would be confessing that. James 5.18 says it this way. It says, confess your sins one to another, pray for each other that you may be healed. There's this transparency concept built into Christianity that we are actually real with each other, that we know each other. Now, that doesn't mean you just walk up to every person you know and spill everything you've ever done, Right? I mean, there's, there's common sense boundaries, but we encourage people to gather with one or two or three and smaller groupings and say, will you pray for me? How can I pray for you? Let's look at the scripture together. I'm struggling in this area. Will you walk alongside me so that I can submit to the Bible with other people? And so community is a very important part of this. 
that I would say is assumed. And it's really assumed with the, the step of trusting God's grace. We trust God's grace in community. We submit to his Bible in community, and we will be the church as a community. Here, he emphasizes this reworking of what we think, this retesting of what we think truth is. If, if you look at verse 2, he says it this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's kind of got two phrases here that point us to Scripture, point us to what do we believe, where do we look for truth. He says, uh, we've been living on our own, and now we need to renew our mind. Now we need to think new ways. We need to rewire how we think, remap what we believe, renew our mind, renew ourselves from the inside out. So we say that we find what God's desire is for us in the Scripture. The way that Second Timothy 3 says is that all Scripture is God-breathed. That means it's breathed out by God. It's often translated inspired, right? It's, it's God's words to us. And it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, and instructing us, and telling us how we should live. And, and so there's a lot of debates in the Christian world about what this looks like. There's a lot of debates about uh, words like inerrancy and uh, the authority of the Scripture. And if you watch the Discovery Channel and the History Channel, it's just going to be a constant bombardment of reasons not to trust, not to trust the Scriptures. What I'd say is just, just keep it simple. God has, has spoken to us. He's revealed to us his desires for us. And the question is really, are you going to submit to what he said or not? I mean, that's really the question. It's a heart issue. So that's why when we crafted our mission statement, as I said, we tried to you know, craft it around the words grace, Bible, and church. We use the word submit on purpose because it's a hard word. Because our culture really is soft in this area. Our culture doesn't believe in truth. Our culture believes the only person we should ever submit to is ourself our own self-actualization, our own desires, right? God made me with this desire, then I should uh, give in to this desire and that I am king. Well, the scripture says, no, no, God is king. He knows how we should live and he would challenge us to change, to, to submit to what he asks of us. So I would challenge you with that as well. Challenge us to be a community that is rewiring and rethinking how we live based on what God tells us, that we'd be willing to submit. And again, we can't do it by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just saying, I'm going to try harder. We do it by obeying the first step of trusting God's grace, right? We, we trust that he loves us. We trust that he's good. It, if he is really good, if he actually loves us, then these hard and, and scary things he asks us to do are also for our good. So we may, we may be at a point of immaturity where we can't imagine how what God asks of us would be fun or enjoyable. But when we look at the cross, he's proven that he's gracious. He's proven that he's kind. He's proven his mercy to us. So based on that, we submit ourselves to what he asks of us. Not because it always seems awesome. There's all kinds of things God asked me to do, and I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't, I don't want to do that. that. That's where a healthy prayer life is important, right? You need to share those things with them. You need to say, God, I don't, I don't understand. Why do you want me to do this? Why are you asking me to forgive this person? Why are you asking me to love this person? Why are you asking me to stand for truth in this situation? I don't want to. I just want to go the other way. Trust his grace and ask him to help you in the process. I have a picture here I wanted to show you of a wiring diagram. Because as he's talking about renewing the mind, I was thinking about this process of when 
when you have something electronic that breaks, you have to go back to the diagram, right? You have to go back to the instructions of how it's supposed to work. We had a treadmill that broke, and I pulled out the manual, and it had one of these things. Of course, I couldn't read it. I didn't understand what it was saying at all, right? And so what I did was I brought in someone that could help me understand the diagram. So I'd encourage you, again, in the process, submit to the Bible, but invite community into the process to help you rewire, to help you figure it out. You might have a friend that's a couple of steps ahead of you. You might have a friend who's had the same breakdown and has, a rework, has had to rework those steps. So that's a lot of what our community groups are about. That's what our recovery ministry, Celebrate Recovery, is about. There's other people that are just one step ahead. It's not like we really know what we're doing, you know, but we've been there and we want to help you as you begin to submit your life to the scriptures and rewire your mind. I wanted to share just a brief uh, testimony of a guy named Jay Budzeszewski. He's a, he's a uh, professor at UT, and he talked about the process that we go through of unwiring our mind when we don't believe in God, because I, I think it's just a, a, a good picture and a good warning of, of the struggle that we have as, as we struggle with, should I believe what God says or should I believe what I say. So this is from his essay, Escape from Nihilism. He says, visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is that they all have God's image stamped on them, so the man can never stop. No matter how much he pulls out, there's still more to pull. I was that man. Because I pulled out more and more, there was less and less that I could think about. But because there was less and less that I could think about, I thought I was becoming more and more focused. Because I believed things that filled me with dread, I thought I was smarter and braver than the people who didn't believe them. I thought I saw an emptiness at the heart of the universe that was hidden from their foolish eyes. Of course, I was the fool. How then did God bring me back? I came over time to feel a greater and greater horror about myself. Not exactly a feeling of guilt, not exactly a feeling of shame, just horror. An overpowering sense that my condition was terribly wrong. I want to encourage you, that's really the easy part, right? I mean, if we're really honest, it's pretty easy to say, man, my wiring's messed up. There's there's something wrong. Something is not working. This is not how human beings should live. I, I know there's something more. To desire that transformation, that's, that's the easy step to repent. Say, God, I'm, I'm broken. I, I am Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's the easy step to admit that before him, to confess your sins before him and entrust yourself to him, to his grace, and entrust him to walk with you to begin rewiring you, to, be, to begin renewing your mind as you submit to what he tells us in the scriptures. I'd, I'd encourage you, as we've already said again and again, do this in community. Join a group where you can do this, a recovery group or one of our Bible studies or prayer groups that meet during the week. Or, or maybe if you, maybe you already had community when you came here, you have a couple of friends, grab those friends and meet for coffee and, and just pray with each other as you begin this journey of trying to submit yourself to what God has to say to you. But find others to involve in that process. The other thing I would say is to read the scriptures for yourself. Uh, sometimes when you just pick it up, you're like, man, this doesn't make sense, right? You're struggling. It looks like that. It looks like that wiring diagram, right? So I would say there's certain parts that are more clear than other parts. So certain parts that are easier to read. So read those parts first. Read, read the Gospel of John or read the Gospel of Mark or follow along with what we're reading 
as we read together as a church, and you can go back and read and kind of reinforce what we're learning. We're doing the same thing with a small group. You might be studying something in a, in a community group together in one of our classes. You're studying that. Well, then go back and reread so that you can reinforce what you're learning. Uh, but start with the simple and, and work out from there. In Luke 24, Jesus makes it very clear that he is the key of the scriptures. We have this fancy word in, in theological classes. We call it hermeneutics, like the science of how to interpret the scripture. Jesus is very, very clear in Luke chapter 24. He is that key. He's the key to the scriptures. So always be looking at the scriptures through the lens of trusting in God's grace, that Jesus is the one that makes sense of all this crazy stuff in the Old Testament and these sacrifices and these laws and these rules. And I don't understand all that. Well, Jesus is the one that's the ultimate fulfillment of everything that went before. The things we like, the things that scare us, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. So again, look through him as the, as the lens to understand it. And then the last thing I would say uh, is to pray and fast through Scripture. As you're beginning to submit yourself to Scripture and you're hitting those blocks, right, of God, I don't want to do this or this doesn't make sense or I don't like this part of the Scripture, pray through it. Memorize the portions of the Scripture that are helpful to you and the, the the portions where you're struggling. Pray through those. Fast. Say, God, help me. Again, it's those arms reaching out and saying, God, I'm trusting in your your grace. I'm stepping out in faith here. I'm asking you to to walk with me through that, and he will help you. The last thing that we talk about in our mission statement is that we are to be his church. We are to be his church. There's two real central metaphors that occur again and again in the New Testament of what that means. One is we are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet in the world, right? So Jesus rose from the dead, and physically he is now uh, with God And he said in John 14, I'm sending the Spirit. So the Spirit is here with his church. The Spirit indwells us. The Spirit indwells his church. And his church is his body. His hands and feet are seen. His actions are now seen through his church, which is kind of scary when you think about how bad a lot of us are as his church. The other picture he gives is the temple, right? The temple picture. And so the temple is this more ancient picture of the place where God meets humans where humans meet God, the place where God is revealed. And so we always have to remember that those two images, Christ's body, his hands and feet, and the temple, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells, where God meets people, uh, those are both lived out in the church now. And the church is not the building, right? We gather in a building, but we're people. Now, uh, I can show you a good illustration to remember this. It says, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open up the doors and there's all the people, right? Okay? So you should remember the people, right? We're kind of linguistically lazy by saying this is the church or by saying this is the church. Really, it's, it's just where we gather. Uh, it's just where we gather because we want the, the shelter, we want the air conditioner, which doesn't seem to be working right now. But, you know, we, we want a, a place to be in from, you know, the outside to be protected from the elements where we can gather and meet and be his people, but it's not the building. The church is... His people when we're gathered, and the church is his people when we're scattered. So, so you, when you're scattered during the week, should be revealing who God is. You should be Jesus' hands and feet through the week, Monday through Saturday. You should be the temple of God where people can meet God. You should be that through the rest of the week. As we think about this temple and sacrifice imagery, uh, I wanted to reread the text again. It says, Uh, 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this word uh, translated spiritual worship, it's uh, a Greek word that basically means an internal worship. So some people translate it as reasonable or spiritual. It has this connotation of kind of like mind and heart, kind of inside out worship. And so real worship, real internal inside out kind of worship is us offering ourselves up as a sacrifice. It tells us we should be a sacrifice based on God's grace, based on his mercy. We should be a sacrifice that is living sacrifice. It's a holy sacrifice and it's an acceptable sacrifice is what he tells us in verse one. So when you think about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, a lot of you probably just think like, ugh, gross, right? I mean, if you've read the Old Testament, it's kind of bloody, you know, it's a sacrifice of animals. And what I would want to communicate to you is that through that sacrificial system, God was communicating that he was a holy God and that we need a a substitute. We need something to take our place, to pay for our sins, to bring us to God. So one of the ways I like to talk about this is that the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was like flannel graph. Um, Any of you grew up in church? Anybody here grew up in a church? When you were like four or five, the Sunday school teachers were like five of you. Wow. So there would be this flannel board and it would be a scene of a rolling hill and then you would have a, like a little flannel felt piece of Jesus you could stick on there, right? And so you could tell the story with like these little cartoon pictures of, of Jesus and his disciples and kind of show the story what they did. Well, I want you to understand that God did that at a huge scale for us with the Old Testament sacrificial system. He gave us visuals. He gave us interactive ways to teach us that God is holy and we can only come into his presence through a sacrifice. And so if you'll go to this first picture, here's a, a model of the temple. The temple's design was built to communicate that. It had uh, like outer rings, you know, this court and then the inner court and then the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, uh, you had sacrifices. You had the Ark of the Covenant. And all of the symbolism was to, was to communicate to us that God is holy, he is righteous, and to come into his presence, a sacrifice needs to take place. That's all now fulfilled in Jesus. There's a couple of things that would take place in the Old Testament sacrificial system that I think a lot of people miss as you read your Bible. It's really hard to understand uh, and make sense of the Old Testament sacrificial sections like Leviticus and Exodus. A lot of that is, is culturally distant from us. And so I just want to point out two things that we see in the text as we try to think about what does it mean for me to be a sacrifice? What does it mean for me to be Jesus's body? He's the ultimate sacrifice. If I'm going to live that out in this world, um, how could I do that? Well, two images from the sacrificial system. One is, is this first one I want to show you is a barbecue, okay? Um, I don't know if you can tell, this guy is grilling a bunch of meat, and uh, I, I apologize to you vegetarians, but uh, one of the things that God did in the Old Testament was a huge barbecue, right? Like, it was just this great meal. He was grilling awesome meat. So we usually fixate on the, the substitutionary part of the sacrifice, right? Like, there's a sacrifice that's burned up, it's all gone, and that was all symbolic, And that happened, right? That was part of the sacrifices. But there were also these regular sacrifices that were you give your meat to the priest and he grills it for you and you all eat together and you have a party. Like that was built into the sacrificial system. So now go back and reread it and now you'll have a new thing to look for when you read through the, the old part. So I would say that's an image of what it should look like for us to be this living sacrifice. And we don't want to be barbecue, right? But we want to communicate, we want to communicate that that joy. You know, we want to communicate 
feasting. We want to be of service to people. We want to be people that communicate fellowship with others. That, that's part of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be this sacrifice for others. That was built into their system. The next slide shows a bar of lye soap. So that's another kind of peculiar thing when you read about the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, many of them were actually formulas for soap. Or if you grew up on a farm, you understand how lye soap is made with ashes and animal fat, and you can mix in other things to be scrubbing agents. You can put in herbs to make it smell nice. Well, you know, scientists can look back and look at the formula of, of the ashes and of the um, animal fat and of the hyssop, which is a uh, herb that has antibacterial properties, and they would mix in wool to make it scrubby. Basically, they were building soap. Part of what we are to do is to be pure. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, that we're to be salt and light, right? We're to bring purity. We are to be cleansed. We're, We're to be holy. We're actually to live differently. We're not to just keep going about our old ways, but we're to be made new. Again, that's part of the imagery of baptism, this washing imagery. So that's part of what was built into the sacrificial system. So what does it mean for us to be a sacrifice? We should bring cleansing. We should bring purity to our culture, to a dying decaying, rotten culture. The Old Testament system says we should bring purity and cleansing. Jesus says we should be salt, preservation, and light, clarity, hope. That's what we should be as the body of Christ. We should bring this kind of life everywhere we go. I've just been... uh, just been overwhelmed lately by all the zombie stuff in the culture. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's this, all this popular stuff about zombies. And I'm not a, not a big fan of zombie stuff, but I think it's a great symbolism. And we need to, again, recognize that as the people of God, we live among the zombies now. Like that, that's the culture we live in. We live in a dying, dead, broken culture. And so the question is, what does it mean to be people of life and people of hope? in the midst of, of death and decay and brokenness. That's what he wants for us. And of course, we do that in specific ways by, by proclaiming the hope that we have in Jesus, right? publicly speaking it, by living out the hope we have in Jesus, by caring for the orphan and the widow. There's all kinds of ministries that we try to organize. Um, all of you as God's people are spontaneously and organically being God's people as you're scattered throughout the week. I mean, that's one of the great things about being the pastor of this church is I get to hear the stories and the testimonies of what God's doing through you throughout the week as you bring this hope to the community. It's a beautiful thing. And that's part of our strategy. As a church, we'll organize ways. We'll figure out how can we help these people? How can we do this? How can we do that uh, to demonstrate God's hope in the world? But also, you're just going to do it. The Holy Spirit is just going to work in your life and you're going to bring transformation to your community. And I can't always account for all of that. It's one of the frustrating things about being a pastor too, right? You know, you want to do evaluation. You want to measure it all. I, I can't measure it all. It's immeasurable. And that's part of what Jesus told us when he gave us these pictures of like the yeast working its way through the dough. It's invisible. And then all of a sudden you see results. Or the mustard seed. It's so tiny. And then all of a sudden it grows into a huge tree. God's at work in you now. And I challenge you to, by faith, trust his grace and submit to the scriptures, and he'll continue to work in you in even bigger ways. You can't even dream right now. I want to conclude by just reading the last section of, of Romans 12. In Romans 12, 3 through 8, 
he outlines how we all have different gifts, right? Um, I like to dream about impossible stuff. I, I like to teach people. I like to counsel people. Those are, those are gifts and passions God's given me. You, you might like to organize things. I don't, I don't understand how that works. Uh, you, might, you might have a gift of mercy, right? You, might have, you know, we all have different gifts. And so God wants to use those gifts in your life. And that's what he talks about in 3 through 8. And then in verse 9, he just gives a laundry list of what it means to, to be the church, what it means to be a people of life among the zombies. And he says it this way. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it means to be his people. As we trust in his grace, it's going to change our view of God. It's going to enable us to actually take that risk of submitting to what he tells us in the Bible. And as we submit to what he tells us in the Bible, we're going to be his people. We're going to be the church. We're going to be living sacrifices that make a difference in this world. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. Pray that you would continue to transform us. Help us to not be conformed to this world, to be like everybody else. Um, help us to be new. We pray that your kingdom would come among us, that we would bring life and hope and beauty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You may be dismissed. I want to remind you that we're taking pictures in the back. If you haven't gotten your pictures on the city yet, uh, we'll have some people by that back door.